listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. Our mission is to cultivate a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit our website at cornerstonetulsa.org or find us on social media. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. Our teaching text today comes from 2 Corinthians 13, 11 through 14. Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice. Strive for full restoration. Encourage one another. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All God's people here send their greetings. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Y'all can can take a seat. Yeah. And go ahead and give the kiss of peace to the person sitting next to you. (laughs) Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. There was a, shouldn't, shouldn't have said, I shouldn't say what I'm about to say. There was this guy, um, I'm going to try not to narrow this down so you can't guess who it is. But there was this guy who went to OSU when I was at ORU, and from time to time I would go to OSU to see Emily. And I would stay in this house of people who loved Jesus very much, and there was this one dude who was zealous about obeying the scriptures. And he saw that, and he like gave me a kiss on the cheek, and I didn't know the dude, and I was like, I'm a little bit uncomfortable with this, I'll be honest. When I was teaching, uh, one of the times when I've taught this catechesis course, um, I give an assignment, you know, every week for something that you should do, and I read this passage about giving the kiss of peace, and boy, you could see people sweating, feeling like I was about to ask them to kiss each other at 7 o'clock in the morning. It didn't happen, but it is in the Bible. We'll have to wrestle with that. Well, this first Sunday after Pentecost Day, the day of Pentecost, is called Trinity Sunday. Um, and it's really fitting that on Trinity Sunday, we'd celebrate Rondel being baptized in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit and these four friends reaffirming their baptism, renew- renewing their commitment to follow Jesus. And today, what I want to do with God's help is to briefly reflect on baptism and the Trinity and Christian community, Two light, three lightweight topics altogether, baptism, the Trinity, and Christian community. The first thing that I want to say to you this morning is baptism is firstly being immersed in the life of the Trinity. The principal effects of sin in our lives are estrangement and alienation and shame. In an intimate relationship, when you do something that you know violates the spirit of that friendship, it brings alienation and estrangement. The other person may not even know what you have done, but they can smell that there's a seed of disunity that's been planted in the soil of your friendship. And this is what happens as a result of sin. It brings alienation. It brings estrangement. It brings shame. But the principal benefits of repentance and faith and baptism and the triune name are are much more and manifold more than the effects of sin. As a result of being baptized into the life of the Trinity, we're given reconciliation with God, that we who were far apart are now brought together. We're offered the forgiveness of our sins, 
that those things that we've done or thought or should have done or should have thought and no longer define us, we can be forgiven. We can be given a blank slate. The scriptures talk about this mystical idea of being given union with Christ, that somehow what is true of Jesus and his death and his resurrection and his ascension is also somehow true of us because we are linked to him in a way greater than we have the ability to explain. Through repentance and faith and baptism, we are adopted into God's family. We're written into the will. We're made co-heirs with Christ of every promise and blessing of heaven. We have a citizenship transfer. Our citizenship is now registered in the kingdom of God. We're given new life from the Holy Spirit, and we're given the promise of life in the age to come. When God rules over us and heaven and earth are brought together again, these are ours through repentance and faith and baptism. And as a result of that, we can now approach God's throne with confidence, with familiarity. The Scriptures teach us that we always come to the Father through the Son by the Holy Spirit, and we don't have to walk on eggshells or tippy-toes afraid that God's going to be mad that we've come into His presence, but with delight Like the prodigal, the the father welcoming back his prodigal child, God welcomes us as we come to the Father through the Son by the Holy Spirit. And baptism, immersion into the triune life and all of its benefits now reshapes our identity. I've told lots and lots of times the story of Martin Luther who was plagued by a guilty conscience and the enemy constantly reminding him of his sin. And in defiance against the enemy, he'd write on the wall, Martin Luther, I am baptized. In all likelihood, baptized as an infant, too. But anchored in his baptized identity, he was able to go forth and do the work that he was called to do. We tasted it together a couple of minutes ago that there's a sweetness to the celebration of baptism. It's really sweet when we see someone go under those waters and come out. There's a natural exhilaration and joy and gratitude and thrill that naturally effervesces from us when we see a person baptized. And there can be a true joy in conversion for the new disciple. Um, Some of you know I was in uh, Lebanon a couple of weeks ago with Rich and Joey from our church and just kind of scouting out investments that we've made over the last handful of years uh, among Syrian refugees in Lebanon. It's a, a little country the size of the state of Rhode Island. They had 4 million people. They gained 2 million more Syrian refugees when the war began in 2013. Children are not allowed to go to school legally. The economy is in rough shape. Lebanon is currently without a president. It's a country in crisis welcoming 2 million people who are in crisis. And I spent the majority of my time while in country with Syrian refugees, and I got to spend a good amount of time with a couple that I'll call Mo and Amina. And they fled Syria as as refugees um, and and came into Lebanon. They were radical Muslims, radical Muslims. uh, Amina came from one of the wealthiest families in Lebanon, in Syria, excuse me. Their family was one of the largest financial supporters of a well-known terrorist network, whose name I'm not going to mention right now. And they came into Lebanon in crisis. And through a series of events that I don't have time to share today, God led them, led Amina, taking her sick child to some Christians because they were out of options. They didn't know what to do about this chronic illness that their child had been facing. 
And even though the Christians were infidels, and even, you know, though to touch the Bible is just anathema, she went in in her full burqa into the church and asked if the Christians would pray for her sick child. And they prayed over that child in the name of Jesus, and she was instantaneously and completely healed. She came home, like, afraid to tell her husband, I took our kid to church. You do what? But she, she showed her husband the proof of what happened through faith in Jesus' name. She became a radical follower of Jesus, and not everyone in, in Middle Eastern cultures does this. She completely removes the hijab. She wouldn't even show her fingers previously, but she's like, I am new in Jesus Christ. In an honor and shame culture, in a patriarchal culture, this is a big deal. As a result of the healing and as a result of her boldness, Mo ultimately decides to become a follower of Jesus along with all of their children. When the word reaches back home what they've done, they have completely disinherited from the family. Were they to go back to their country of origin, they and their children would be slaughtered. But they counted this with joy. Mo willingly writing off, ceding everything that he owned over to his family who remained because he wanted to be free and not have anything they could hang over his head. And now completely trusting in the grace of God, they're living in a foreign country, and God has so worked in their lives that this couple is now pastoring five churches in refugee camps scattered throughout the Bekaa Valley of Lebanon, leading a ministry, feeding um, uh, refugees scattered all throughout the area surrounding Zahle. God has worked so powerfully in their lives, and, and the greatest evidence of it for them has been the overflowing joy they've had amid difficulty and in the face of what could be their own execution. I got to spend a little bit of time in the city of Biblos with a woman I'll call Nadia, who had been living in Saudi Arabia. She was a Syrian. Her dad was a radical Muslim, and she just had this instinct that there was something more, and the Lord Jesus called her name. And at great risk to her own life as she ended up fleeing Syria and then Saudi Arabia, making her way into Lebanon, she was baptized into the church of Jesus Christ. And she and her husband together are serving refugees all over the city of Beirut. I think of Omar, who came to know the Lord Jesus in Syria. He was kidnapped by ISIS and beaten and beaten and beaten as he was asked the question, who do you worship? And he responded, Jesus the Messiah. And he was so proud to show me the video of his baptism. And there was so much joy for him and freedom for him in his conversion and meeting the risen Christ. And as a result of the conversion of these people, these people coming into the family of God, they're now joyfully serving other people like them, most of them coming from Muslim backgrounds scattered across Lebanon. One of the main things I went to go check is that we, as our church, funded the launch of an elementary school in a, in a tent community. And I was like, I hope it's at the very least a vacation Bible school. My expectations were very, very low, and I was flabbergasted. At the end of one year, to see all of these children receiving a comprehensive education, including being discipled to follow the Lord Jesus, many of their parents coming to know Jesus through the ministry of this school and through the ministry of these churches that we partner with. Also went to a middle school. You may see pictures of that out in the lobby. And friends, I am just amazed at what God is doing. 
Uh, at some point, I'm going to take a bunch of you back with me. I need those of you who are healthcare professionals and those of you who are educators to get ready because we're going to go back to Lebanon a whole lot. But the thing that struck me in talking with him more than anything was just hearing about the joy of knowing Jesus. Coming from a harsh background, the message of grace, the freedom from shame, the gift of the Holy Spirit. And as I said, all of these things are are made true when we're baptized in in the life of the Trinity. We tasted the goodness of God in this way, and that's such a rich and beautiful thing about our conversion. Baptism is firstly being immersed in the life of the Trinity, but baptism is also being immersed in the community of disciples. And that's where things can begin to get a little more complicated. The way that God designed it, is that when a baby is born, that that baby is welcomed into the world in the context of a family that receives it with love and care. And that's how God wants it to be. And so it is with our new birth in Christ when we are born from above. Our new birth in Christ is meant to be intimately tied to birth into God's family. And this is from my perspective why private baptisms should be very, very rare. Uh, You know, I did one on one occasion when there was a couple who was from the the Middle East, present in Oklahoma for higher education, and came to know the Lord Jesus. And were they to be baptized, not only would there be a hit put out on them, but also on their families back home. And so in a home, we baptized this husband and wife into the the, the triune name of God and, and made them members of the body of Christ. Gave them a Bible. She put that cross necklace around her, uh, around her neck with so much joy, beaming with life. But generally speaking, because baptism is not only about one's personal relationship with God, but also about bringing, being brought into God's family, it should not be separated from the life of the church as a norm. But this second immersion, being brought into the community of disciples, can be like a a couple, an engaged couple who finally gets married and they begin living together, and at a certain point it hits them that they married an actual human being with flaws. Everything is amazing at first until they realize, oh snap, this is a person too. And that kind of rude awakening of the reality that everything is not amazing all the time in the community of disciples is the subtext at work in this passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 13. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, it's in all likelihood the third letter that Paul actually wrote to this church. It's a church in the Roman city of Corinth that he had started. And by the time the letter we know is 2 Corinthians was being written, some people in the church, I don't know if we can even imagine this from our perspective, some people in the church had grown embarrassed of the Apostle Paul. Paul was like, it's like there was a dark cloud always following him around. Paul was getting beat up all the time, shipwrecked all the time. He's always got some new bad thing that happens to him. Even though he's written the bulk of our New Testament, Paul was not known as being an especially impressive or eloquent speaker in person. Uh, Perhaps most shamefully of all from their perspective is that Paul worked a day job. He made tents so that he was not a financial burden on them, which you think is a point of courtesy, but they actually took it as a point of shame. Paul was like, 
he like still has to have a job. He doesn't seem like he's particularly well established in his ministry. What they really wanted was that Paul would be more like some of these other preachers that they'd heard of that Paul called the super apostles, the lamest superhero of all, perhaps. They wanted him to be like the super apostles, these these itinerant preachers who have a big financial backer, their speech is smooth like butter, and they walk in and they've got that like celebrity pastor aura, and you just think, this is a person who's used to being looked at by large crowds of people. They're like, we wish Paul would be more like those people. We like those people. And the relationship between Paul and this community, this church that he started that at one point had been so sweet, turned sour as it was strained by the presence of the world and worldliness in the church. And so many of us know just what what that's like. Uh, Jean Vanier, who has quite a story himself, Uh, writes about the phases of life in the Christian community. Some of you may have heard this. He said, almost everyone finds their early days in the community ideal. It all seems perfect. They seem unable to see the drawbacks. They see only what is good. Everything is marvelous here. They feel they're surrounded by saints Heroes are at the least the most exceptional people who are everything they want to be themselves. And then comes the letdown. During this time, everything becomes dark. People no longer see anything but the faults of others and of the community. They feel they're surrounded by hypocrites. The greater their idealization of the community at the start, the greater their disenchantment. So it says phase one of, of community life is kind of the honeymoon phase. You're like, oh my gosh, this is the best church known to man. Everything is perfect here. You've got to meet these people. They are like the most mature followers of Jesus. They don't have any conflict in the church. And then there's phase two that comes when there's disillusionment that takes place, when you realize, oh, they're broken too. This is not a perfect church. And many of us know only too well the disappointment of the church. Sometimes it's not just your run-of-the-mill hypocrisy or egotism. Sometimes it's outright evil behavior perpetrated at the hands of those who say they love Jesus. And just as the, the Corinthians were holding out for these super apostles, many people hold out the hope for a super church. And I would just give you a hint. If you are looking to find a super church, the super church is almost always the church that you're not presently a part of. The most desirable church in the world is the one that you don't presently belong to. And I will just tell you that every church that you admire from afar, every like you know, best-selling Christian pastor, author, that church, you think that is a church that's really got it down. That church, too, has warts. And that church, too, has conflict. And that church, too, has misaligned expectations and disappointment and sin and grievances. In fact, the church that, that you may be currently groaning over, there could be some of you here, is the church that some other person is presently longing to be a part of. The super church that we're always seeking is always the church that we're not presently part of. 
we really shouldn't have two rose-colored lenses in the way that we view the church if we've actually read the New Testament. Because the bulk of the letters in the New Testament are, are written, inspired by conflict or sin or controversy that's happening in the church. It's precisely because it's jacked up that most of the New Testament exists. For crying out loud, even at the ascension of Jesus in Matthew 28, you can read 28, 16 through 20, there's this great human line in the passage. It says, then they worshipped him. I mean, he's just been raised from the dead. It says, they worshipped him. But some doubted. At that moment, some doubt? You think, has he not given like inexhaustible proofs of his resurrection? The scars, the wounds, he's actually there and they saw him die. He's ascending to the Father and there's still those who doubt. The church is always this kind of mixed bag. This reality persists. What can be done about it? Vanier continues, he says, if people manage to get through this second period in the life of the church of disillusionment, they can come to a third phase, and that of realism and true commitment. They no longer see other members of the community as saints or devils, but as people, each with a mixture of good and bad, darkness and light, each growing and each with their own hope. The community is neither heaven nor hell but firmly planted on earth, and they are ready to walk in it and with it. They accept the community and the other members as they are. They are confident that together they can grow towards something more beautiful. How does one get to phase three in the life of a community? He says, many people who have lived together for years and whose love for one another has been tested know that the community has not resulted from the fact that they were able to hold together, but from the knowledge that, that they were somehow held together by a greater force. We are a community not because we happen to like each other or share a common task, but because we have been somehow called together by God. Some of you have tried quitting church so many times, and you can't believe that you even came to worship today. And you feel yourself pulled as if by some kind of magnetic force. And it is the Lord Jesus Christ who is perpetually calling us unto himself and to each other. All of the members of a community must be on their guard against sowing discord whether consciously or unconsciously, all of them must constantly seek to be instruments of unity. I think it's really good news for the person currently in the disillusionment phase of life with the church to know that you can move from idealism to disillusionment and you can also move toward this third phase of covenant which can be characterized by a kind of renewed innocence a renewed, innocent engagement with the life of the church, liberated from over-rosy expectations and grounded in the reality of frailty and brokenness and the goodness intrinsic to the church, they're poised to learn to love the church as she actually is, not as we would like her to be, and both serve and be served by her members. 
And from this posture of a renewed innocence and the way that we see the community of disciples, we're able to appreciate that though flawed like our families, the church also has something to offer. This happened, uh, it was illustrated for me twice Friday morning. I come in on Friday mornings and hopefully I'm getting a little bit closer to finishing a sermon. Uh, It doesn't always happen that way. But uh, I, I was in the office Friday morning. I'm the only person here, and the phone rings, and I normally don't answer the phone. Sorry. Uh, I'm very easily distracted. But I went ahead and answered the phone. I picked up, and it goes, hey, yeah, how can I help you? I say, hey, man, I've been smoking a lot of weed. It's like, okay. And he starts crying. He's like, and I'm really, really lonely. And I just need somebody to talk to. And we end up having this conversation for a while. He goes, hey, man, can I ask you a question? Sure. Do you guys do potluck dinners? (laughs) (laughs) And the weed comment plus the potluck dinners, I thought, went together so perfectly. (laughs) I said, you know, we haven't done those in a while. We really need to do some potluck dinners. I agree. And he goes, yeah, you, you probably need to get going. It's like, yeah, I need to write a sermon. He goes, hey, man. Can we write that sermon together? <laughs> I said, you know, I'm, I'm probably going to have to write it. He said, hey, man, I love you. I said, I love you too. And we hung up. And he was just, but he was, he was sharing in the conversation, just so lonely. He's like, I don't have anyone to talk to, so he's cold calling churches. That's pretty sad. I left the office, which, by the way, is in the white building over there um, now, and I was walking over. And out of nowhere, I just hear screaming, screaming, screaming. And I'm looking around. I can't tell what's happening. By the time I make it to the door, I realize there's a, there's a woman in the bushes over here screaming her bloody guts out. And I'm a little personally unnerved, not worried. Like, I'm the only person here. I'm not worried about safety of the building or anything. But I'm like, I think this is the same lady who was walking down Harvard when I drove here, screaming her guts out barefoot. I wonder if we can call in some help. So I tried to call in some like psychological intervention to talk with this lady, and I'm listening to this lady just screaming at these people, processing what she's going through. And they asked her if she needed crisis care, and she said, I don't need crisis care. I need family care. I need people who love me and don't hurt me. It's like, oh my gosh. She ended up storming off, didn't want to talk to anybody, but she just went on this lengthy diatribe about all the things that people who should have been good to her uh, did, the ways that she suffered at their hand. Church, we have something to offer people like this. We must, (laughs) we must be poised and ready to see and to appreciate like each one of us that come into this room, we're made in the image of God and we come in more lonely, more stressed, more insecure than you could possibly imagine. And if that's true among those of us who are already following Jesus, how much more true may it be for those who are bearing intense shame We're alienated from God, alienated from from other people. We must have a readiness to see and to welcome people like this, but it's not going to happen accidentally. And this is why Paul, working through all of the muck 
and conflict with this church that has disillusioned him, has disappointed him, writes to them at the very end of his letter. He says, brothers and sisters, it's familial language. Rejoice. Which as I thought about it this week, I thought about it. Find your joy again. Find that renewed innocence, that renewed appreciation for the fact that though different, we can call one another brother and sister, family language. And then he says, strive for full reconciliation. A guy who writes it like that is a guy who has tried and not quite made it to full reconciliation. And some of us have put in all the work of trying to be fully reconciled to others within the church, and we don't quite get back to where we were before we harmed each other. But Paul says, strive for it, to be reconciled to one another. He says, encourage one another, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss, which I think we should take to me, we should have affection for one another. We should have love and we should cherish one another. It needn't and it shouldn't be all business within the church as we're just colleagues or associates at the office, but to relate to one another as family. And he says, he blesses them by saying, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the fellowship, communion of the Holy Spirit go and be with you all. So we think about being baptized into the Trinity being immersed in the life of Christian community, I want to invite you to consider a couple of questions. One may be, have you hit phase two of your life with the church, which is disillusionment or boredom or disinterest? And are you actively pursuing phase three, which is covenant? Now, there's a dance there. You talk to the Holy Spirit about there's a certain amount of dysfunction within a church where you're like... I don't know that I'm going to stay to be the rescuer here. But you're going to find a degree of it presence in every congregation. So it may not be here. It may be in another local church. But the Holy Spirit would invite us to make a covenant with the people of God. It's the family that we were born into through faith in Jesus Christ and baptism. You're actively pursuing phase three. And I ask you, what hinders you from loving the church as she is? You might consider how does the gospel, the way that we now have a restored relationship with God, how does the gospel inform how we treat others inside and outside of the church? What effect does your presence and your manner of engagement have on the life of the church? Or I could ask it this way. If everybody engaged the life of the church exactly like you do, how would we be doing in healthy communication? and mutual encouragement, in conflict resolution, in prayer, and so on and so forth. If everyone engaged the life of the church exactly like you, how would we be doing? One of my favorite authors says, the only way to change culture is to create more of it. So that you are not going to change the culture of the church by criticism or critique alone, only by actually sowing in our rituals together, our life together, an alternate kind of behavior and interaction. This is what the Spirit would invite us into. And I'd ask you to consider, what steps is God inviting you to take to move toward greater unity, greater harmony, 
greater health, and a, a more authentic covenant with the local church. Let's pray together. We're so grateful you listened to this week's sermon at Cornerstone. If you live in the Tulsa area, we'd love to invite you to be a part of our worship and community in person. You can find service times and more information at our website. But wherever you are, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face towards you and give you peace.